Hello, friend. You've got mail. Well, hello, friend. Welcome to another episode of this fabulous, we hope, podcast where Henry and I talk about everything Mr. Robot. I'm Margaret and I'm here with Henry and we're here to cover season four, episode eight of Mr. Robot called Request Time Out. Hi, Henry. How are you? I'm doing great, Margaret. How's your week going? How how is your Thanksgiving week turning out? So far, pretty good. Very busy doing lots of traveling, trains, buses, subways. It's a real change of pace for me, but I'm very happy to be talking about this particular episode with you. I don't know what you thought about it. I really liked it this week. How about you? I really did too. To me, it was an interesting contrast with the prior week's episode where you had a similar situation with someone who was, uh, you know, under the control of someone else and torture potentially and people at risk and, you know, a villain, lots of monologue, but the way that the episode was structured and the way that the uh, characters performed their roles was uh, very different for me. What about you? I thought that once again, the cinematography was gorgeous. The story itself had so many twists and turns. I definitely wasn't expecting things to go where they were heading in terms of what happened with Dominique's family. And even the whole Janice interaction with Darlene and Dominique was really pretty harrowing and tense. And I really didn't know where that was going to go. Even the very beginning of this episode, as you know, in 1995, where we got to see Elliot and Angela when they were very small, and playing in the Queen's Museum. And I thought that whole opening scene was just beautiful with the cinematography. And it was pretty compelling to see that's when young Elliot started his uh, friendship, if you could call it that, with Mr. Robot. Yeah, and this episode had a lot of different narratives and themes. But one of the strong narratives in this was Elliot's relationship with the Mr. Robot persona. And Starting from a place of tension where you looked at Mr. Robot as the persona of the abuser uh, to how it resolves itself in the end. There were a lot of really great camera shots in the beginning. There was Elliot, little boy Elliot, looking over at the scene in the museum and you could see his reflection and there was a lot of that symbolism. It was pretty cool to see how he hid something in the museum and we really didn't find out until later what that was. And just to see also Angela Young where she called him a butthead, I thought that was pretty funny. I really felt like there were some real MVP players in this episode. For one, Krista, they followed up with the whole death of Vera and Krista's trying to get Elliot out of there and also how she was coping with the fact that she just killed somebody. Yeah, and it kind of made me wonder if there's going to be a love interest thing with Krista and Elliot and where we learned that, you know, there was some sort of chemistry between the two of them and that sort of intensifies as the season winds to a a close. I was wondering that too. I mean, she really 
cares about him for sure. I thought the way that Krista was trying to keep herself together while she was trying to take care of Elliot and herself and get out of there because she knew that Vera's associates were hanging out outside. So she was trying to think for both her and Elliot. I thought that the actress did a really great job of acting like somebody who was in shock. I mean, she really conveyed that realistically to me. And it's true, the way she told Elliot, you know, you have to come see me and, you know, you mean so much to me. It, it was definitely, a, I was wondering if it was crossing a line. Do you think that Kristen knew the whole time that Elliot had this history of sexual abuse. Yeah, that's what her notes seem to indicate. And, you know, the episode with Vera where she's talking to him about what's in the notes, it seems to indicate that she had some knowledge of that. Did you like how the actress Gloria Rubin was playing Krista in shock. It made me think about how different people react to being in shock and having a crisis like that happen. Some people kind of lose it. She was just recounting everything and just trying to keep her wits about herself. Did you find that compelling? Yeah, she seemed to have that that performance of someone, you know, in a heightened state of alert because of some shocking event, but, you know, still holding it together, still trying to be rational. Uh, you know, the kind of short, shallow breaths and the intense look around her eyes. Yeah, I thought she did a great job. Yeah, and I thought it was a nice touch that Peanuts and Javi, when they finally decided to go inside back into Krista's apartment, because as one of them said, that was some cliffhanger shit they left us on, which I thought was a great insider line. I thought it was hilarious that they took Vera's wallet. I mean, it was probably to remove his identification, maybe, but... Maybe it was just to get what was there. Uh, it's kind of like the equivalent of, you know, when a wolf uh, falls down and the rest of the pack turns on it, right? It's like, you know, the chase scene where the wolves are hot on the, you know, the protagonist's tails and then one of the wolves falls down and the rest of the wolves just kind of turn on them. That also reminds me of when you work in an office and somebody leaves or is fired and you see all these former co-workers raiding that person's desk for supplies. I, I saw that once and I couldn't believe it. Like people were really getting excited about what they could pilfer from this poor guy's desk who had been laid off. And I was had the same kind of wolf imagery in my mind at that time. Yeah, the king is dead. Long live the king, right? <laughs> And I'm going to take those paper clips. <laughs> I thought also, just not to spend too much time on this particular part of the episode, but I thought it was pretty compelling the way Elliot was questioning, how am I going to act now? Like, I don't even know how to react to these things in a normal way. And everything that I thought was real, I'm, I'm questioning that reality. Krista tried to say, you've always had that in the back of your mind. You're just going to have to keep going. And it was a real break in Elliot's personality because he even apologized to Krista for getting her involved in all of this. Yeah, and you really sort of see the different aspects of Elliot's personas sort of break down and you know become somewhat fluid. And it's part of the reforming, right? Like you'll kind of see the emergence of a stronger, more mature, more heroic Elliot, I believe, over the next few episodes. 
So I guess in some ways he has to thank Vera for really pushing this to the extreme. Of course, Vera lost his life doing that, and he wasn't a good guy anyway. Elliot said, what do people do? People like me, when they find out something like this, that sense of trauma and that sense of, like you're saying, being broken down, and and he, he will come back stronger. We didn't see that yet in this episode, but I mean, we still have you know, several episodes to go before this whole series ends. And uh, I think overall, like, Krista definitely deserves MVP or one of the MVP slots for for what happened and how she kind of stepped up to the plate. Yeah, a really great performance. And so do you think Elliot will see Krista again? Oh, I think for sure. I, I, I imagine that she's going to be... Uh, an important part of the next few episodes. I, I think at some future point, her life will be in jeopardy by White Rose or the Dark Army again. Yeah, I mean, we don't see the Dark Army losing too many of these battles, but we definitely saw a bit of them being outsmarted later on in this episode. I did like how Elliot was following his younger self around and back to the Queen's Museum where he was there uh, so many years ago in 1995. I don't know if you remember where you were, or what you were doing in 1995, but that does feel like forever ago, doesn't it? In some ways, yes, but in other ways, no. Like, uh, you know, for it, 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 yeah, a little bit of both. I can see that. We do follow Elliot sort of tagging along with his younger self. They end up back at the Queen's Museum, and Elliot really isn't sure. Adult Elliot isn't really sure why he's there, but they somehow manage to get into the museum and into the unauthorized or private rooms after hours, which I was sort of wondering how that happened and if this was just some kind of a dream sequence of some sort, because they went back to the hiding space where Elliot had hidden something from when he was younger. It turns out to be the key to his room, which was used to which was used to hopefully keep his, his real father out. And did you notice the key had an E, like E Corp? Yeah, this whole sequence to me made me wonder how much of it was real and how much of it was either a dream or uh, some sort of uh, mental sequence. Just because one of the things was it was lit very differently, like in a very orange, warm palette where a lot of Mr. Robot is filmed in a very blue, cool uh, palette. Uh, so, yeah, it made me wonder about this. It made me wonder, too. And I was going along with it. And, and I loved again, any time they show shots of the subway and they were definitely showing a lot of those images a lot of New York specific images. But what, like I said, when Elliot and his younger self were able to just saunter into the museum, I mean, did they break in? Was the door left unlocked? It seemed like something that would happen in a dream. And then even when he went into the storage room, he said, you know, oh, the sign was in a different place. But it seemed like it would be a really similar thing to a kind of wacky dream somebody might have. So I thought that too. And then when I saw the key, it looked like an E-Corp logo. It just seemed to me pretty suspect that this was happening as a dream or as some kind of a vision and not really, really happening with Elliot going back there. But who knows? 
Who knows? Did you like the little guest appearance by Tyrell in the back of the taxi and the uh, the advertisement for E Corp wishing everyone a merry, merry Christmas? <laughs> Just a reminder of the many faces of Mr. Robot and Elliot. Yeah, because if Tyrell really is one of Elliot's alter personality, then Elliot was probably imagining that happening too. Yeah, although it's still kind of unconfirmed in episode if Terrell was, in fact, one of his personas, right? Yeah, it's true. And I still don't know 100% for sure. Another thing I thought was surreal about the taxi scene, not to go back to that too much, Elliot and Krista got into the taxi. The first thing Krista says is, take us to the nearest police station. And she's covered in blood. And the taxi driver is silent. There's like, and in some ways, that's very typical of New York. Like, I could see that actually happening in real life. The cab driver just wants his or her fare. But on the other hand, it was pretty funny. And then with the Tyrell sort of chiming in, I had to wonder what's really going on, like what's real and what's in Elliot's mind. Yeah, the epitome of an unreliable narrator at this point, especially in this episode, given all the imaginary people that he's seeing. Yeah. And, you know, when we did see Elliot with his younger self and they found the key it was all meant to tell Elliot, the adult Elliot, you know, you did fight back. You really did try. You weren't this passive being. And it's really tragic to think about how when people do experience trauma like that, they do tend to blame themselves. I mean, how could a little kid like that be at all responsible for the terrible things that seem to have been inflicted upon him? And yet it's a very common reaction. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is this kind of human impulse to think that we control far more of what happens to us in our lives than we actually might. So even the bad things that happen to us, we somehow assume responsibility for. When I started out in college, I was a psychology major because I wanted to be a therapist myself early on in my younger years. And I took a social psychology class. And the first class, I remember the professor saying, what's the best way to treat people with depression? Now, granted, this was a giant lecture class. It was very entry level. And it was quite a while ago. But they said the way to treat people with depression is to give them the illusion of control. (laughs) And I was so disillusioned. I dropped out of that major after taking that class because I was like, that's so we just have to lie to people. But there is probably something to that. (laughs) Well, it's like how people say that, you know, the elevator open or close buttons are actually disabled or the crosswalk buttons actually don't work or the morphine buttons don't actually do anything uh you know the pain buttons next to the bed to give you more pain medicine like they actually stop working after a while Uh, a lot of things seem to be more about the illusion of control than the reality yeah boy so much of life is about the illusion of control isn't it i mean maybe that's a lot of what capitalism is based on is the illusion that you can control certain aspects of your life if you had certain things. Anywho, (laughs) I did love the scene where while this is all going on, we briefly go to Dominique's family's house and we see some very warm sort of holiday gatherings and some kids arguing over cards. And I know this is a minor detail,
detail, but when Trudy, you know, Aunt Trudy, Dom's mom, tries to stop the two kids from fighting over a deck of cards, she says, new rule, you each get half the cards. And I was like, that is such a jerk move. (laughs) But, you know, it's kind of like a King Solomon move, right? It's like, I'm going to split the baby in half. Yeah. Um, there, there you go. I know. It's, it definitely reminded me of something that would happen, I guess, in a lot of families. Definitely in my family. I could totally see one of my aunts or, or even my mom saying that to some kids, arguing. And it was a pretty, pretty cozy-looking Christmas holiday scene. I knew something bad had to happen because they used that song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, I think, playing in the background. And then all of a sudden, one of the kids sees these people just rushing their, this home, this family home, and I thought those people were all goners. I just assumed that the Dark Army got them. Oh, that's interesting. I, I never really thought they were going to be in danger just because I thought the way that the episode was going to unfold was going to rely on them being in jeopardy. So I I, I didn't think that they were going to get slaughtered in the first scene. Oh, I thought immediately that they were all going to get slaughtered. So it's interesting that you interpreted it differently. And I think that's just a testament to, potentially a testament to the quality of the storytelling here because it showed just enough to keep you going but it didn't spell everything out at least for me did you think these were the dark army who came in like did you know who they were when they raided dominique's family's house uh mm, ah yes (laughs) yes uh I, i guess the short answer is yes you know, it's it's interesting when when the episode kind of unfolds, you're you're looking at so many different things, right? So, it, you know, is it in the first two seconds of the scene did I understand? Oh, this is uh, Dom's family, and it's the Dark Army coming into the house. No, but as the episode unfolded, it didn't surprise me, right? Like sometimes the way that writing works and the reaction that you have to writing on TV is you almost judge it by the response that you have after the fact, right? Because in the moment, you're kind of absorbing what's happening. And it's sometimes hard to know what your reaction is in the moment. It's more about remembering what your reaction was after. Oh, that's a good point. This episode really gave us a lot of moments like that, I think, to ponder. So like, I just assumed everyone who saw that scene would think it was the Dark Army. And the fact that Sorry, my, my cat's meowing. Come on, stop it. <laughs> the, uh, I just assumed everyone would have thought it was the Dark Army, but that just goes to show how immersed I was in the story and in the moment. I did like especially all of the scenes with Janice, Dominique, and Darlene. And even though Krista definitely deserves an MVP award for being a kick-ass therapist and friend and survivor... I also thought, my God, Dominique, I thought she could have very well died. Did you? Yeah, I mean, I think if she actually passed away, they would milk more dramatic tension from her passing or more emotional impact. So to kind of leave it off screen with Darlene escaping while she waits for you know, the cavalry to come, I, I don't think, see that happening. So I think... It, it, it 
builds tension to sort of have that off screen and not really have it said that she's okay. But I don't think that she actually died because I think that they would have done more with it. So basically, just to kind of catch up to where the story is at this point for our dear listeners, Darlene and Dom are captured by Janice and her fellow thugs from the Dark Army. Janice is really intent on getting Darlene to give up the location of her brother. Darlene wiped her phone, so she made it especially difficult for them. Dom and Darlene are sitting side by side, tied up in these chairs. Darlene has a terrible gash on her head, and I can't believe Darlene can even sit there and act like a normal person, because I think in real life, she'd be pretty messed up. But Janice isn't really happy with with the slow pace of getting this information. I mean, Janice is really efficient about, you know, she wants things to happen now. One of the things, I'd love to hear what you think about this. One of the things I love about Janice is she's a complete podcast addict and conspiracy theorist. So she talks, you know, podcast trivia with them while they're held captive. And she says, did you know that cities were created by lightning? (laughs) Do, Do you like that aspect of her? Yeah, it feels very contemporary, even though it's set a few years in the past. I really love Janice's uh, character in this episode and the performance the actress did. Uh, I compare it to my reaction to Vera's character last episode, and I love Janice's uh, character's uh, performance so much better. Uh, I thought there were elements of... Uh, Misery. You ever see the movie Misery with Kathy Bates? Um, I thought that there were like echoes of that performance in this one. You know, the kind of malevolent cheeriness and just this kind of like matter of fact, like uh, sadism (laughs) that they employ. I think it's very similar. Uh, But yeah, I thought this this uh, this character and this scene was the highlight of the episode. I completely agree. And the actress who plays Janice, just to give her some credit, is her name is Ashley Atkinson. And there are a couple things I like about her as well, in addition to some of the stuff we've been talking about. So like I said, I love that she's into podcasts and conspiracy theories. And I also like that she has a certain amount of self self knowing and also self loathing so at one point she said your mother was so desperate to fix you up with somebody dominique she was even thinking of fixing you up with me like can you even imagine i thought that was a bit of self hatred that was done in this matter of fact way and i also like and i know you probably caught this part too where she said you know they did all these tests on me when they my family found out that i like taxidermy and it turns out i'm just completely normal sort of like the banality of pure evil Yeah, exactly. I think this idea that someone can do terrible, horrible things and be into really sick stuff and, you know, modern psychiatry and testing has no ability to diagnose them as uh, pathological. She has the capability to be completely evil and maybe the interest in taxidermy, I mean, not all taxidermists are, are psychopathic or sociopathic killers. You know, it made me think of that store in San Francisco, Paxton Gate, with all that taxidermy stuff. <laughs> oh, I don't know that store. Oh, gosh. Yeah, if you go on Valencia uh, in the mission, there's, it's called Paxton Gate, and it's all these people really love going in there and 
And every time I go in there, I sort of get the creeps because they have ephemera. They'll have like a mouse skeleton or they'll have like a taxidermied fox. And all these very lovely people, I'm sure, go there to get stuff or look around. But that place always creeped me out. Yeah, I mean, the way that I understand it, everything is shedding molecules to some extent in any sort of environment. It's just a question of it's detectable and how much, but everything sort of sheds molecules. And the idea of being in an environment where there's a lot of decomposing, like, organic matter just doesn't seem appealing to me at all. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has that kind of formaldehyde vibe to it. Like, I don't know if I'm really smelling formaldehyde when I go in there. And it's it's definitely presented as like a hipster place. It's not presented as Janice's taxidermy store, but it still has the smell of death in there to me for sure. So she's great. And I also love the way Janice reverts back to this really childish sort of dialogue where she calls Darlene, a, you're a lying liar, something an eight-year-old would say. Yeah, uh, and kind of an indication that something's not necessarily right in the head, right? Because I think I've seen horror villains sort of cast in this mold where they they have this kind of bright cheeriness and they seem very banal, but they there's something about them mentally that hasn't uh, fully developed and they seem somewhat childlike. I think there's quite a number of horror f- villains that fit that mold. Yeah, and Darlene made the mistake of saying to Janice, you know, you're not going to get from me what you want. I will never give up the location of my brother. So if you're going to do something, you might as well do it fast. And then, bam, Janice stabs Darlene, uh, Dominique right in the lung and Dominique falls to the floor. And that was... That was painful to watch. What did you think of all that? Yeah, I mean, it was... I thought part of the elegance of this episode was the sudden flashes of violence and the kind of brutality followed by banality uh, and the tension. I thought it was all done really well. Janice is upset because even after Darlene agrees to give up the location of Elliot. When the Dark Army gets to Krista's house, of course, they just see it's a body, but it's somebody else's body. It's Vera. And Janice is pretty upset about that fact. She is really intent now on letting Dom die, even though Dom is a really good informant. And at some point, she just decides she's going to let Dominique's family have it. There is one interesting thing, too, I wanted to mention, where... Janice throws it in Dominique's face that she saw how Dominique is into Darlene through what Dominique was doing watching the interrogation videos. And you remember when Dominique was on those online sex chats and then she kind of had a dream and she dreamt that somebody came over to her house and it turned out to be somebody from the Dark Army. In some ways, that was sort of a premonition maybe uh, of what was to happen. Yeah, it's some sort of intuition that she was being violated or being watched. So that was a really hard scene. And I guess I didn't really think Dominique was going to die, but I never imagined the following. For one, that McGuire, <laughs> the, the lucky Irish bastard, as uh, Dominique calls him, at least on her cell phone contacts, was the one who was behind kidnapping Dominique's family to save them. 
to thwart Janus and the Dark Army's plan to kill them. So I, I thought that was pretty remarkable. And I never imagined that Dominique could be such a badass and take all of them out while she had a punctured lung. Yeah, I, I, I like that scene. It reminded me a bit of that scene in uh, Four Rooms where uh, the last scene where you kind of have this buildup to violence and then all of a sudden it happens really quickly and you're just kind of... <laughs> left a bit stunned at how fast everything happened. It was really pretty well done. And even still, after Dominique successfully takes them out, goodbye Janice. I mean, couldn't have happened to a nicer person or a better target. Dominique has the wherewithal to actually call <laughs> to have somebody come and rescue her. And she convinces Darlene to leave the scene. She can't be there. I did see one comment which said, that they had a hard time believing that there was such a bond between Dominique and Darlene and that there were any real feelings between them, as Janice was implying and as it seems like they have. Do you feel like it was realistic that they have some kind of bond, or did you think it was rushed? I thought it felt a little bit forced from the beginning, you know, this sort of romantic interest between Dom and Darlene and the sexual attraction and chemistry, I it just didn't feel natural and authentic to me. Uh, so I can see where they're coming from. Yeah, I could as well. I, I sort of, I guess, went with it a little bit more. I will say that I would be horrified to know that somebody was watching me through my laptop cam, like my laptop camera, and uh, that's why. And maybe that isn't how the Dark Army was keeping track of Dominique. I mean, they're probably looking at her everything, not just like through the camera. But I do have one of those laptop camera covers, FYI. <laughs> you know, the concern about being watched might seem a little bit quaint in retrospect if you hear the stuff that people are saying about 5G and 6G with uh, really granular location data and sensor awareness and smart environments. You basically have the ability to create uh, 3D models of any environment where a connected device is in, which gives you real-time uh, you know, image capability. And this idea of somehow covering up a hole uh, or, you know, a camera port to block someone looking at you might seem sort of quaint. That's a good point. And it's probably the least of one's concern when you think of all the abilities to look at somebody's life and collect data about them and watch them and all the data breaches that are happening. But I still have my laptop camera cover. <laughs> it is kind of quaint and paranoid. At the same time, the scene where Elliot is still trying to complete the hack, but he just seems really dispirited. And Mr. Robot shows up again and gives a heartfelt speech, says, you know, I'm not your father, but I did try to protect you, but I think I did a horrible job of it. That was pretty touching. It was good to see those two sort of unite and work it all out. Yeah, I, I thought this episode in a lot of ways had a very classical arc to it. Like if you uh, read Joseph Campbell's work and the journey of the hero, the hero's journey and the, the kind of classic arc that a hero goes through, uh, this episode kind of embodies the, the kind of classic uh, questioning period and then the sort of rebirth of the individual into the hero. 
And as part of that, you have in classic hero journeys, you know, Jesus's time in the desert. You have, you know, Joseph uh, in Egypt. You have people in periods where they are questioning their values and their reality and a bit lost and astray. And that moment precedes their eventual rebirth and uh, you know, their, their heroic victory. So I think we're kind of seeing that period in Eliot's journey as a hero. Yeah, he's definitely in the process of rebuilding himself. And even though at the end he says, I just can't do this, and we're left to ponder if the whole plan to thwart the dark army is over, we know that he just needs to rest. This is just a, a timeout for Elliot while he regroups. And he's all on his own. His sister isn't anywhere to be found, not that he's been looking for her yet. The illusion of Mr. Robot's been shattered. I mean, I guess he still has Krista. I'm really looking forward to the next several episodes. I don't want the show to end, but it's been a real fun journey so far. Yeah, you can kind of see the pace of things accelerating. You know, I, I think the next episode we'll see White Rose and Philip Price back in the picture. Uh, maybe one or two characters uh, from uh, previous seasons uh, making an appearance. Uh, yeah, I, I think you know, Elliot and Darlene uh, and somehow Krista all kind of coming together. Uh, all these things. And again, the continuation of the longest Christmas ever. <laughs> I know. This is the longest Christmas in existence. What a great concept to spend an entire season on Christmas. It's pretty smart from a commercial standpoint, too, because this will be something that gets shown. I I wonder if they'll do Mr. Robot marathons all because it leads up to a whole season based on Christmas. I know that a lot of actors star in Christmas movies or holiday movies because it's kind of a, a recurring cash cow. So that's why you see actors like Billy Bob Thornton doing Bad Santa, because it just gives you a nice payday. So I know Mr. Robot is much more than that. It's a real labor of love. I really think you're right. We'll see all these characters come together. And I, for one, can't wait until we see more Dark Army stuff going on, because I love that, and I love all the hacking, and I still want to know what White Rose's shipment is. Did you have any What Would You Rathers this week? Yeah, what would you rather, pumpkin or pecan pie? Ooh, I'm going to go with pecan pie, even though I know it's one of the most fattening. I, I like pumpkin pie, and I make stuff with pumpkins, but pecan pie is just so decadent. How about you? Uh, I would say my, my really kind of decadent love is uh, like a really good, rich pecan pie. I, I remember, you know, as an immigrant... I didn't have a cultural background to a lot of food, so oftentimes I discovered certain foods late in life. And, you know, some of those moments are kind of like eye-opening. Like, I didn't realize this type, this thing existed. Where have you been all my life? And pecan pie was one of those things for me where it was like, what? Like, where? what is this thing that's so delicious? Like, how come nobody's ever told me about this thing before? Oh, that's a really nice story, Henry. I really like that. I didn't know that about you. And I mean, of all the foods to really relish, I mean, pecan pie, that's a pretty good one. Pecans are so good anyway. Well, I think from an like a immigrant 
point of view, it's not something that sounds really good, right? Like pecan pie. It's like someone saying peanut pie or almond pie. It's like, okay, it's a nut. <laughs> like, how exciting can that be as a pie? Because, you know, when people think of pie, it's like strawberry or apple or something really sweet. And you don't think of a nut as something that's going to, you know, make your mouth melt because it's so decadent. So I, I think maybe I'd heard people talk about it, but it didn't really spark a lot of interest. And I, I had the pie once and it was just like light bulbs going off in my head. Like, what is this thing? Like, what is this? I need more of this in my life. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. That is really awesome. All right. Well, I'll keep it Thanksgiving themed myself. So what would you rather? Regular stuffing or cornbread stuffing? <laughs> Ooh, I, I would say cornbread stuffing just because cor to me, cornbread is just one of those delicious inventions that, you know, it, it makes everything better. Well, that's awesome. So for me, I could eat an entire bucket full of regular stuffing. Well, the vegetarian version, which I know to a lot of people, that's more boring. But I could eat a bucket load of stuffing. I love that stuff. I don't even know why we don't eat it all year round because it's so good. But I love cornbread stuffing too. I like all stuffing. What about cranberry sauce? Do you combine the stuffing with cranberry sauce when you eat it? I do. And I'm one of those people, I make my cranberry sauce from scratch. I know some people really like the canned stuff, at least in my family. But yeah, I love cranberry sauce, especially the way I make it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Thanksgiving is really evocative for people because it's like a mix of different flavors and, and smells and, and, and experiences. It's not just about the turkey, but it's about the turkey and then the side dishes and how everything kind of, you know, uh, all the tastes that you kind of have one after the other. I think it's a very intense sort of association. Yeah, and different families, as you know, have different traditions, and some of them are more tasty than others. A lot of it's based on stuff they had when they were kids. So in my mom's side of the family, they are not doing it this year, but they'll have like the so-called traditional you know, turkey and stuffing, but often they'll have lasagna because <laughs> they're also Italian-Americans. And my grandfather, who came from Italy, would make stuffed manicotti, <laughs> stuff like that. So it all gets mixed together. Twitter is a great place to look on Thanksgiving Day for people kind of posting pictures of either amazing side dishes or horrifying side dishes, uh, sometimes both from your point of view. Uh, I think the ethnic adaptations to Thanksgiving are always pretty amazing. You know, the United States being a land of immigrants, I think it's really cool to see the different dishes that the different uh, communities bring from their homeland here. Like I know Koreans will often have a noodle dish. It's called chapche. It's like buckwheat noodles. And I, I remember that being a part of like Thanksgiving spreads when I was growing up, uh, along with the, the turkey. Oh, I, I love that. And I have had that before, I think, that particular dish, and it is delicious. Anyway, I hope we're not making you hungry, dear listeners. And I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and our review and recap of Mr. Robot. Is there anything else we should talk about before we go eat some stuffing, Henry? 
and pecan pie. I'm just thankful for all of our listeners and subscribers. I think it's great for the people who have been with us since the beginning and the people who have joined somewhere along the way. I think it's uh, really amazing that you guys listen to us, and I'm really thankful for all of that. Yeah, same here. And if you have anything you want to say to us, please feel free to write us at hellofriendpod at protonmail.com. And I'll say that again, hello, friend, pod at protownmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to you, Henry. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. Happy Thanksgiving, Margaret, and all the listeners. Thank you. You too. Bye.